Hello, this is Matt Hale, Art Monthly Talk Show host for you this evening. Um, I'm in a room with four other people at Resonance Radio. Actually, sorry, that's rude. We have got actually another one as well. He's called the Engineer Chris. No, I, mean, I'm not really I forgot him. So there's five people. So six in all. So it's pretty packed in here tonight. Um, but the guests on the Art Monthly Talk Show, which relates to the February 2019 issue 423 of Art Monthly, are. Curiously enough, Chris McCormack, associate editor of Art Monthly, who's also the host of Art Monthly Talk Show every other time. So I do one, he does one. So for the first time ever, he is on with me on my programme. Our programme. Thank you for having me. Our programme. Our programme. Yes, that's Chris's voice, just so you know. And also we are joined by Isabel Harbison, who's written a review, and we will be discussing that. And she's an art critic and lecturer in the Department of Art, Goldsmiths, and author of Performing Image MIT Press 2019, which is due out this spring. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Say something. Say something, no. <laughs> no, no, no. That's fine. Yes. We are. Okay, yes. sorry. No, Hi. no, no. <laughs> but just so people get to know your voice. So they oh, know when okay. you speak, they'll, I won't have to keep saying your name all the time. We've also got... I'm the only woman, so... <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so that, that'll be so supposedly noticeable. I don't know. Andrew Hibbard, writer living in London. It said at the bottom of your piece, Andrew. Do you want to add anything else? Simple biography. It is. It's nice. I like that. And... Last but not least, Dominic Johnson, author of Unlimited Action, The Performance of Extremity in the 1970s. That's your latest book, and, um, Dominic? Yep, and that came out uh, well just recently and was launched this week at Tate Britain. Fantastic. What cred, eh? But you've probably got other books to back that up as well. Haven't you got other ones, haven't you? Yeah, a few. Yes, which is good to know. So we're all varied in experience, that me being the least in terms of authorship. <laughs> I never write a word. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Um, basically, we're going to do um, talk about the work written, the text rather, written in the issue. And we're going to start with Isabel. And Isabel um, wrote about Josephine Pride and a case, In Case My Mind Is Changing, was the title of the show. And it was at Simon Lee Gallery. Um, Isabel, ba- basically, just give us an idea of what, what you saw when you were there and uh, what you thought about it. Then we'll ask you questions if you need any help at all well um it was a fairly straightforward exhibition in terms of format and layout there was uh 12 images within six diptychs large scale um um hung on the wall and um how many four i think sculptures on these black mats that look like yoga mats and on those there was um two sort of stone-like objects or very artificial looking stone-like objects white um, and the titles of those were Time and the Tampon so they bear some vague resemblance to a tampon I think I wrote about it between yeah looking like something like between a a tampon and like a 3D printout of a rock and um, sort of odd little sculptures Um, and uh, initially when I walked in it seemed very dry I was not particularly sort of academic yeah, it just it didn't kind of open itself to me immediately. There was nothing sensational about it. it. You know, it was kind of took a while to get a read on it. Um, at the time, I was thinking about it at the same time as the Amy Siegel exhibition, which was around the corner showing in Thomas Dane. 
Yes, I saw that. Yeah, there was a league. And I thought actually I was going to write about them together, but um, through you know didn't in the end. But um, somebody else reviewed that, and I actually had a very different read to the one that's reviewed in in the current review of Art Monthly. But um, I sort of felt that Amy Siegel was very overdetermined in a way that left no room for me to kind of. go in and really think about the work. Whereas, um, sorry, just to be more specific, the Josephine Pride works were of um, paired images of Neolithic stone carvings, um, majority of which were um, originally, um, uh, or the photographs were taken in Northumberland, so one would assume that's where they were originally done, um, and also Spain. Um, And there are these... um, um, concentric rings that are, are carved and have been smoothed over time on these um, old kind of basalt rocks um, and um, there's various kind of organic life that's kind of lived and and um, probably died on it as well and um, and they're they're kind of um, obscure and so I mean obviously the process of reviewing is one of kind of getting to know work and one can very swiftly begin to hate an artwork or like it more and so I think the process of writing was really nice because I started thinking about those works and also thinking about them in the context of Josephine's previous series of images. Um, Do you want to say what they were like? Um, so I mean she's shown I mean she's shown a lot I think in the UK and I've seen her work abroad as well. I saw the CCA show that she did in San Francisco a couple of years back um, which was um, the one that I think that uh, also there was, it was related to the Arnold Feeney show um, but it was a sequence of images of um, uh, close-up details of different women's bodies I think with different um, nails or one, perhaps not female but nails that were painted different neon colours and um, uh, a train that ran rather obscurely through the gallery a kind of to- well a, 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 an upscale toy train and um, the train seemed um kind of an obscure element as well originally I mean I, th- I do think those sculptures all offset her photographic practice um as kind of a as yeah as kind of they're kind of like a jester um within the photographic series but um prior to that she'd also done a, a photographic series of pregnant uh, young women and also um, em- um embryos from oh I can't remember I think it was a medical catalog um a kind of pro is it a pro-life catalogue that you've yeah. taken it out of? Mm. Um, so the very kind of scientific embryos um, superimposed onto desert landscapes. Um, and then I think she's also done a series of child portraits, but they're not quite beautiful child portraits. They're kind of a child who's tantruming. It's a child who's sort of about seven or eight. And I don't, I think that it's really actually kind of an amazing work. So, I mean, I looked into these stone carvings that she was um, photographing and I was trying to understand why. And I haven't spoken to her. So, I mean, I don't know. This is a complete hypothesis. But I found these, you know, um, theories of this being some kind of a symbol of um, fertility and female fertility. And like a lot of the Stonehenge has, you know, it's been read that they're, um, you know, symbols of phallic and male fertility. So I thought this kind of yonic counterpart was quite interesting. And also, I don't think she's ever gone for the sensationalist kind of motherhood like you know essentializing motherhood or essentializing like breeding it's much more pared back um stripped reduced um images of reproductive bodies and at the same time as a kind of mechanical reproduction as a photograph and so i thought it was really beautiful kind of addition to um her 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 kind of body of work over the last 10 years and then the it sort of really opened up to me in a way 
as well, I suppose to go back to the Amy Siegel where I thought that was such overdetermined work that it's like, you know, we've known that the gaze is gendered since 19, you know, mm-hmm. and Laura Mulvey told us that in the 70s. And, and she's telling you that again, is she? She's telling me that all the time, but like artists are telling me that all the time. So it's like, come on, Amy, like use multi-part installation, you know, in this way that Amy Siegel can, in a way that she has done many, many times before, which opens a thing or makes it obscure or makes it complex. And I suppose my issue with you know, a kind of Me Too movement or any overdetermined kind of under-complicated kind of feminist, you know, outcries is that doesn't um, leave any scope for complexity. And then there's something about Josephine Pride's work that's, even though it's so sparse, there's such kind of complexity with it and depth and how she thinks about photography and the ways that she handles images. Like, there's such... It's it, there's such scope for thought in it, and there's such interesting relationships between her various bodies of work. She's very, um, and I hadn't had the opportunity to think in depth about it, so it was a real pleasure as a writer to be able to do that. And um, and again, I've haven't had a conversation with her, so it's all completely speculative. But I thought it was so interesting. I thought, God, now is a time for works like these that aren't kind of bashing us over the head with some, you know, essentialism. Mm-hmm. Well, that's your your. You're right to bring your view to the work, I would have thought. Well, you don't need to you talk. let me. <laughs> and you might again. Good old Art Monthly, yes. Does anyone want to argue with her? <laughs> I don't think we do, do we? Go on. What? I mean, I mean sorry, I'm just going to say, on. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I was just sort of sort of similar feelings in a way when I first saw that show I, I actually saw it with Isabel uh, the similar sense of the resistance in the work yeah. uh, and I think that's what was interesting in terms of even speaking to you about it was that sense of how it yielded more and more yeah. uh, complexity through the kind of deeper thinking that yeah. you went through and just in like terms really of, looking at those photographs yeah. and how she'd handled them and how she'd photographed them, the light and the focus and it was just like mm. you know it was yeah those sort of strange lumpen objects as well that sort of referred also to her brain or the inside of a body part that kind of what was expanding or contracting and I don't know, it's just yeah, an intriguing way of kind of seeing how we reflect both on the present but the past and the sort of the physical body and how they maybe manifest in today's biotechnological space I suppose. Yeah, I mean I think there was an inquiry into memory that I didn't yeah. quite go into and yeah like, I mean I think those, they're just so fascinating these um, stone carvings you mm. think if this was a, sim- a symbol of female fertility that's incidentally appeared ac- across the world in all of these different sites um, you know in obviously completely different technological area pre-travel pre you know sort of communication it's kind of I mean there's something really mystical about it which I you know I mm. write about at the end um, and I think definitely that's something that pride really har- like really shows us yeah shall we talk about some other f- Photography, or a different form of photography, really, he said, sliding from one person to another. Yes. Basically, um, we have an interview <laughs> in the magazine by Dominic with Ule, and uh, I, I won't. I'm not going to say much really because I think you're a far greater expert on him and know him quite well. So, when did you do the interview, Dominic? So this interview we did about um, three weeks ago, possibly just just before the uh, or just after the this show opened. But so we're, we're of, talking January 2019. Yes, yeah. and it continue well, it continues or is uh, in conversation in a way with an interview we did together in 2014, I think, which was a much much longer interview. Um, and so there are little references <clears throat> to that interview in in the one in Art Monthly. Which is fine. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is occurring at the same time as a show at Richard Saltoon. Yeah. So which, which you obviously didn't review, but you um, clearly were present at. I mean, I believe you were at um, the making of one of the works in the show, weren't you? Yeah, so I think the, the show is an Im- important in a number of ways. Firstly, it's I think it's the, th- the third Sardo exhibition that Ulai has had in the UK. Um, there was one recently at Dundee, in Dundee at the Cooper Art Gallery in January, December yeah. 17, tw- 2017, 2018. Um, and then he had a solo show... Uh, probably about six years ago at MOT International, which is now defunct. Um, but he's... So he's an artist who sort of has a... Um, a um, I suppose precarious relationship to the market or to commercial galleries and commercial representation. Um, and he's an artist who's sort of a lot better known as the former collaborator with Marina Abramovich, especially in the works they made from 1976 to 1988. And so the exhibition is really important, I think, because it does a really good job of um, showing the work that Ulay was making outside of that sort of uh, range of... of um, performances so it starts in um, around 72 the works that are being shown um, with works that are what he refers to as performative photography where he took a huge I mean sort of thousands and thousands of self-portraits using Polaroid um, which were facilitated by him being sponsored by the Polaroid Corporation and being given huge amounts of... I thought that was very clever that. Yeah and and he originally got them I think to do sort of basically travel reportage so he'd get given lots of photographs uh, photographic materials and go around the world but then he used them to both document himself but also document sort of down and outs uh, social marginals etc and created this vast amount of material and then that led um in um are they all black and white by the way am i wrong uh, no a lot of them most of them are black and white but there are some color ones as well um, and then in the sort of mid-70s, probably, I think, 75, 74, 75, he turns more um, explicitly to performance. And he talks a little bit in this interview, but uh, in the other one in more detail about kind of finding a, you know, coming up against a sort of um, a limit of sorts with photography and that leading to making work where his body is made, is centre stage in, in a different way. Um, like a lie, live I mean, yes, but in a in a complicated way, in a sense. So the so one of the, I think there are sort of three kind of cores to this exhibition. One of them is a perform is a, is documentation in film and uh, photographs that are from a work called um, "There Is a Criminal Touch to Art" from 1976, uh, which is also known as the Berlin Action, where Ulai walked into the New National Gallery in Berlin, um, stole um, a painting uh, by Karl Spitzweg. Uh, from uh, from the 19th century, um, called the Poor Poet, and the and the work is that he essentially takes the painting, runs, um, is filmed by um, a guy called Jörg Schmidt Reitwein, who was the cinematographer for all the good um, Werner Herzog movies, um, and they f- flee through Kreuzberg and end up at a uh, apartment that is owned by. Um, a migrant worker, a Turkish migrant worker family, and they, he installs the painting in the in the, the home, and invites the um, Dieter Hunish, who was then the director of the New National Gallery, to witness the poor poet in its rightful place. And then he's arrested by the secret police and prosecuted, and and so on. And the and the, the film is a kind of edited document that isn't quite documentation, but it's more of a kind of edited work in its own right. And, and he sort of follows him as he goes. 
yeah, on his travels through. He, he undertakes but, a few different actions as well. Is it well. right? Abramovich filmed the bit in the museum when he actually stole he, it. Yeah. Did she, I read that somewhere? Yeah, she filmed... Uh, the, basically the filmmaker, the cinematographer wouldn't go inside the museum because no. it was such a crazy idea, I suppose. She put it in her boot um, or something to take it out? Yeah, she had to f switch the reels so that she could get the hot reel out of the museum. Yeah, but, um, but they obviously knew each other at that time. I mean, that, that was that, is that why Ule was in Berlin at the time? Yeah, was they were to, there to help her with a performance or something? She, yeah, she was doing a series, um, the freeing, freeing the body, freeing the mind series, which was in Berlin. That's a, that's a solo um, project by her yeah, though. In seventy six, yes. And he was helping. They weren't working. She, he was together. he was filming. So they'd met very shortly before, and um, and then commence around that time on their sort of now iconic relation work series and so that what's important about the show is there's 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 that work which is from 76 there's also much earlier works um which is kind of complemented in some way not much earlier from like 72 onwards and then fundamentally what's important is the new work so he made a live photogram the night before the private view uh which is called performing uh, it's called performing light i think um and he essentially lays down on the ground on a photo, photo on photographic material. Um, a light is um, sort of released with people ha holding their hands over the photogram, and um, that creates an image once the sort of photographic developing liquid and fixative is placed on it. And so we all sort of stand and watch this image, kind of this very ghostly sort of seance-looking, uh, an image that looks a bit like seance photography, sort of emerges from uh, from the um, the paper, from the white, which turns black in these sort of interesting ways. And then um, throughout Ulai, who is very unwell, um, uh, sort of narrate, narrated it in a very low voice, just sort of explaining really the kind of technical elements. So it's sort of, it's a strangely spectacular event, but quiet and slow and precise. Um, and so that now is installed at the back of the gallery um, with some foot. Uh, Polaroid works. It was hung on the wall and developed by someone else, wasn't it? Is yeah, that right? A, a, a photographer called Peter Uhan, who's uh, Slovenian. And he said the people involved were awful, but he yeah. meant in awe, yeah, which I thought was quite, quite amusing. Which is actually, a, 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 that gag is a, re a, a reference to apparently when Marina Abramovich and Ulai did Night Sea Crossing in the 80s, which became, which was the sort of the basis of Marina Abramovich's now legendary Artist is Present, uh, where they sit opposite each other on a long table, that apparently uh, John Cage came in and watched and they could tell because they recognised, apparently he used to wear a really distinctive, uh, use a distinctive olive soap because they could smell, <laughs> could smell John him. Cage in the room. And afterwards, John Cage's only comment was that the audience were awful and that Ulai assumes he meant that they were full of awe. So it's a sort of very like cryptic reference. Um, the, the other work that's important in the gallery is the um, large Polaroids. So there's uh, one large Polaroid called Not My Cup of Blood. and um, that's, that's, a lot, that's a lot larger, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, it's... Um, that's Polaroid as well, is it? Yeah, it's, it's sort of five or six feet tall. Um, it's from a series... Um, called Long Playing Record that he made in 1992 and they're with the world's largest Polaroid camera which is in Boston and that camera is used for a range of other kind of well-known series for example Kathy Opie's massive series of Ron Athey portraits uh, from the early 2000s I think there's 13 of them um, 
and they produce this huge, this, these large images which are incredibly detailed and beautiful. So in the image that's, that's, that's shown, which is a, a kind of coffee cup with blood pouring over, you see the really detailed grain. He, he does mention this in the interview. He doesn't talk about that work. Does He says the phrase in the interview. Yeah. He doesn't actually describe. So what do you know what that work for him is about? I, I don't I, I mean, I wouldn't want Sorry, to that's putting you on the spot. Yeah, I, I think, know, I mean, rather than knowing or think, saying what it's about, I think it's... It, it belongs to a really long-term, sustained exploration of what photography can do. And so I think, you know, he makes this comment where he says that, you know, photography is essentially um, technology, optics, and chemical process, and that different forms of photography will, you know, pick and choose among those three operations. And I think this is, like Polaroid is for him, where those three kind of facilities or faculties are heightened or interrogated in a particular way so the optical dimensions of the image are kind of heightened in this I think in a really incredible way and the technological transformation of what's shown in front of it to this big but also very vulnerable image is I think important so there's a big show that he had about three or four years ago in um, Rotterdam, which was all the Polaroids, or a huge array of Polaroids, and they have to be shown in actually very controlled, um, sort of uh, controlled light because they're sort of, you know, he talks about the photo as a kind of skin, and this skin is like kind of in an evocative way living because it's so vulnerable to the the environment. Um, You know, in in the work, in this series, there's a lot of, portraits of objects so the other object the other image that's in the um that's reproduced in in the interview is um a sort of quite beautiful portrait or kind of picture of a molotov cocktail made with a coke bottle um and there are a huge amount of other images as well that in that he it also led to him doing a lot of images of water which were the big polaroids of water were in the mot show a few years ago and um and then he sort of returns to these different images or sort of tropes i guess for example when he was first diagnosed with cancer he made a series of polaroids also very large ones where he returns to the to water because his eyes would stream so there are these beautiful big polaroids just of his eyes streaming water and then he made a huge it's quite a fluid form the polaroid cat in a way you know when it comes out of the camera wet yeah and you have to wave it about for it to dry it then there's a sort of it could and people used to manipulate the surface didn't they as they dried i can't remember who did that now but yeah and and uh, the um and the performing light action of course was was fluid in that sense as well, well. yeah they're going to say that as the sponge falls of different chemicals were being de- like daubed onto the he doesn't seem to like dig- digital photography particularly in the interview does he I mean, no, he thinks yeah, other he, people made good work with it but it's not yeah and that's it, and that's i think characteristic a, of the way he talks which is to not to dismiss what other people do but to really closely define what the his areas. parameters are yeah the areas processes practices concepts that are interesting to him and I think you know what was really amazing doing the interview was that he was incredibly ill um, and so he uh, you know at times would he sort of drifts in the interview in a way that was very moving affecting in the moment yeah, you did capture that in the interview I thought oh, I'm glad and I think you know there's the, these sort of moments where he starts to talk for example about um, Raymond Russell and um, and into Duchamp and other things and you know this sort of meditating on like the way Roussel wrote through bubbles in his mineral water after returning from Africa, these kind of really sort of seemingly esoteric mm. or enigmatic references. And then he kind of comes back to the, the questions at hand. It's um, quite, quite a poetic interview. At one point he talks about having a crash in a van. 
with well, a load yeah, of glass he... in the back and they go through the windscreen. Yeah, and, he's, and the point he's making is about... So I asked him this question about recklessness, so that the action yes. in Berlin seems like a reckless action. Um, and he sort of puts me to write in a really compelling way, essentially, to say that, um, that reckful, recklessness suggests a lack of discipline and so that regardless of the use of endurance or risk or criminality or similar that all of these are disciplined activities uh, which i think was a really good yeah, he said he thought the, the, the he stole the painting he thought the, the gallery the, the the museum owner would manager sorry director would say it was reckless thing well, to have done but it wasn't well and he says it's that, highly planned that it's a sort of it's a that, you know that that one can perceive him or the action as somehow reckless but he wants to remind, remember that it has a sense of discipline to the undertaking um and that he makes this char- very characteristic wordplay that you know the the root rec- reckless is a term which has supplanted um the the wreckful that wreck is as a form of care but he makes this relation to the german which is where wreck is stretch and so he's saying that i'm not reckless i'm he's flexible um, and yeah. which leads him to this point at the end of really starting to talk i ask him why he doesn't have a signature style and what he says is how that he's and he's, he lists a series of principles essentially about being non-linear about uh, not repeating the same thing about change changing the parameters or um, dimensions or techniques or motives um, and then this point about hiding things so he says that he he you know he's, he says um, another tricky thing I don't let it go I hide it I'm a hideaway artist I've done so many things that people don't know about they can't know because they don't have access to my archive which they will presumably one day at some point or do you think not well, a lot of it has been made available. There's a book that came out called Whispers um, a few years ago, and that does at the back have a kind of... A bit like a resume, is it? Yeah, it's sort of a catalogue resume, but I think it's not complete. And um, and there are things... Well, there are things that are hidden. Also in the show, there was a show in Schoen, at the Schoen in Frankfurt, and there are actually works which play with the hiding where there's a um, Polaroid or a series of Polaroids that are kind of um, in sort of... Um, steel a steel case so they've been kind of um welded into a certain kind of invisibility so so there are things where even that will go into the archive i suppose but they're still uh, invisible uh, invisible or can't be the the contents won't or can't be disclosed does anyone else i can always talk some more but has anyone else got anything they want to ask or say about Ule? No problem at all if you don't i I was was just thinking about the term hideaway and more and more in the sense of something that's always out of reach in a way, not necessarily something that's hidden or, mm-hmm. but is continually out of reach. And I think probably that's part of being a performance artist in a way, something that's never tan- the intangible elements of being a performer or being a performance artist. I, I see that also within the work. Totally, and I think that's that works in relation to the sort of the counterpoint that always seems explicitly or implicitly to be at play between mm-hmm. Ulai and Abramovich. So often in like the kind of um, sort of you know, the audiences see them as somehow twinned, but actually when you look at the work, it's so... Um, uh, the, the work is at different sort of uh, cross-purposes. And so there's something about, you know, yes, if, the, if performance tends to be intangible or it tends to be elusive, there are certain performance practices which force it into a certain kind of uh, palatability or um, legibility, which partly has been, I think, the 
the project of Abramovich to spectacularize performance, to you know, um, to simplify the logic of presence. Um, so Marina Abramovich is always present. Uh, the artist is present, and there's been a lot of you know criticism that seeks to un- undo that assumption. That what what does it mean for an artist to be present to to the audience, to whom, to, to knowledge, to history? And Ulay's work has been this long, kind of, ob- you know, long project of of evading notice, of hiding in plain sight. And so I think there is that sense that, you know, some practices of performance exacerbate the problem of it being intangible or illegible or elusive. Other works sort of diminish or mask it. Mm. Um, Funny enough, her, her new work coming up at the Serpentine, I think it's on for five or six days or something, isn't it, Chris? There's, yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be actually a virtual Abramovich. So you won't... She isn't going to... For the first time, she isn't going to be there... But she sort of is. Yeah, it's an augmented reality. It's not so, live, is it? Uh, you don a pair of glasses, not actual VR headset, a uh, pair of glasses, and then uh, within that, within the frame of the... Proje- uh, I don't know how the technology works, but basically you will see a, a 3D rendering of Marina Abramovich. And you sort of feel like you better walk around yeah, so her, you, won't you? she'll be physically or, mm. you know... But that maybe, maybe she's not there really then for the first time. Mm-hmm. About time, I'd say. I guess it's this uh, omnipresence rather than... Uh, <laughs> it's a bit... Rather than, uh, yeah... Good, well put, well put. Very interesting. I was also, just to say, I, the painting he stole was much loved by Hitler. Well, the painter was much loved by Hitler. So Not the particular painting. So Hitler had, um, I think, 30-something of Spitzweg's paintings. And um, Spitzweg was this sort of, um, he's a bit like the Norman Rockwell of like German realist painting. It's sort of kind of a little bit sort of kitschy and... Um, well, it's a painting he, of a poet in bed with an umbrella up. It's, and yeah, isn't so it's, it? It's a it's a painting of a poet who's sort of persisting through the odds or against adversity to you know, and he's the the you know the the the, the understanding of the images that he's sort of picking out a line even though everything around uh, a line of poetry even though everything around him is falling apart and he's burning his. Um, uh, manuscripts, and so it would seem that Ulai is doing something about poverty. Like, oh, is he hmm. thinking about a different model of poverty because he gives it to a to, to some supposedly poor, low-income Turkish migrant family? Migrant family. Yeah. Um, but he says that you know the content of the, po- of the painting was was irrelevant. What ah. he wanted to do was to irritate his Germanness. So he remembered the image when he went into the Biedermeier Gallery and the New National Gallery. He saw that painting and remembered that it was the only color image in his school oh, yeah. textbook. And so the idea was that he he says in the interview that we did before he says that he thought that if he could get his hands on the painting all hell would break loose because he basically was in color as the only one in the book because it was a big favorite of yeah and the, it was ranked um, the in the in the seventies it was ranked as Germany's second favorite painting uh, in like international painting after so it's pretty brave Mona to Lisa. go for that really wasn't it yeah absolutely and that he just sort of grabbed it and ran Talk- yeah. it is extraordinary sorry okay now. Talking of bravery, you could say, but yeah. um, that's true. Chris has written a feature which follows the interview in the February issue of Art Monthly. This is the Art Monthly talk show, by the way, again. <laughs> and Chris, um, you've you've covered quite a, a complicated area historically and emotionally, and I know it's it's a very important area in every respect. I, I don't want to talk for you, but um, it's called Love AIDS Riots, and. Um, I don't know what the best way to talk about it is, but if you would you like to sort of start by explaining your yeah. maybe the impetus behind why you wanted to write it now, perhaps. Well, in a sense, uh, 
I sort of survey a kind of a uh, series of exhibitions over the last uh, six ex- six months or so which have focused on this particular part of history, uh, what I guess has become to be known as the sort of AIDS years, which is that era of time which spans the sort of early, ni- early 1980s right through to about 94, 95, which I guess is seen as the beginning of what medical advancements known as protease inhibitors um, which saw the sort of the first signs of uh, people, you know, being able to live with uh, HIV in a more sort of long term, sort of sustainable way anyway. Um, and so these exhibitions look at the kind of uh, activism that was born out um, partly, well, mostly through the, I would say from about 86, 87, uh, the beginning of ACT UP, um, but also in terms of other shows such as uh, Otto Italia's show, Grand Fury, uh, specifically these sort of group of artists and um, how they responded to what was seen as a, a willful lack, um, particularly in the US, um, but also globally, um, in response to the AIDS crisis. And, uh, and by that I mean uh, in terms of uh, funding, particularly funding about um, uh, the, uh, in terms of medical research, uh, but also in terms of education about transmission and uh, how that sort of, uh, yeah, transmission and so on. So uh, Grand Fury kind of uh, were p- pivotal in that respect. Um, and so these shows such as uh, Grand Fury, Auto Italia, uh, or also at Tate Modern, uh, a show, uh, it's curated by Gregor Muir and uh, Catherine Greenberg. Um, similarly, uh, what's the show called? Uh, Intimacy, Activism and AIDS. Um, both are unconcur- uh, actually no. The, the Tate show is still on, but uh, the Grand Fury show just ended. But um, both of them sort of reflect on these uh, histories, and also further to that, uh, numerous other shows. Uh, so I mentioned Radcliffe Hall. I mentioned uh, Ed Webb and Gall's film, which uh, touches upon Section Twenty Eight, uh, which is a, a law in the UK uh, that prohibited the promotion of homosexuality in this country in nineteen eighty eight. I feel like I'm running through a lot of material yeah. here, but uh, um, but yeah. So there's a what I'm saying is there's numerous strands um, uh, that we've seen uh, in the la- I would say particularly in the UK in the last year uh, about this particular history. I think the US has been much more focused on it. I, I would say, uh, and there's been more exhibitions there um, over the last few years, and, and notably such as uh, White Columns. Um, which showed uh, Sarah Shulman, who I mentioned, uh, and Jim Hubbard's work on uh, ACT UP New York and the oral history project that they've done, um, and so on. So, I mean, there's been numerous sort of attempts to kind of reconfigure and broaden our understanding of uh, of the AIDS activism that was going on in that period, yeah. Which is, in the main, work that is made by artists, but was used publicly more as... Aware, to bring awareness and and to make statements, would you? I mean, I don't. I, I I know that some of it was made by artists and therefore probably very good visually and graphically. For instance, like Jenny Holtz's font was borrowed with her permission, I believe. Uh, Barbara Kruger. But sorry, yeah. Barbara Kruger. And 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 that that. But there were artists behind the way it looked, which made it. But it, that it wasn't only artists probably involved in a lot of this. That's right, um, and it's not that I'm trying to. I think it's. It should be careful not to sort of augment that, you know, artists don't hold a sort of exceptional position in this history necessarily. However, um, I think what's interesting, specifically with the work of Grand Fury, um, I mean, there's lots to say about all of these subjects. But anyway, uh, in terms of Grand Fury's work, uh, and what's interesting about that is that they were predominantly artists or involved in either graphic design or some element of, let's say, visual intelligence, you know, sort of using how, how we use visual material. 
Um, and so that's what sort of marks them out. Where, where was it? Where was it seen? So I mean, they, uh, as many uh, of these groups that I mentioned uh, in the article, uh, used uh, sort of fly uh, fly posting, uh, billboards. So non gallery. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that was a sort of uh, one of the sort of, a sort of key element uh, of Grand Fury and many of these organisations in that for them it was an activist work and so it was important that this material was publicly available. It wasn't about necessarily presenting work in a gallery. Um, it was about using the gallery structures themselves as ways to fund projects. Uh, so, and that's I mean that's what's interesting about the figure of the artist in this respect, in that they became a conduit through which. Uh, money became available uh, and that was useful for them. And, you know, there's many, you know, you could say contemporary uh, parallels actually to artists today, but similarly they were very much using those networks um, in order to present their work. Which they were perhaps already involved with as artists, do you mean like, so they, they the gallerists would, were drawn along with them, helping them because they already knew them? To some extent, they were not necessarily with Grand Fury, but certainly other artists, and um, and that's more in terms of fundraising. Um, so, for instance, uh, you know, from Robert Gober to uh, Ross Blackner, um, you know, a lot of those artists were very much selling their works and present, you know, fundraising and all these. I mean, it's multiple uh, fronts here um, in terms of the necessity to drive any element forward in terms of publicity uh, and kind of acknowledgement of the the fact that the specifically and this is very much within a u.s context um the uh the lack of awareness that was felt uh being felt in the mainstream press um in terms of uh yeah the aids virus hiv and aids there was something you mentioned it was going on lack of awareness in the u.s but there was also probably worse awareness here and you mentioned at one point that 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 that, that there was a ban on the importation of that's right of gay yeah. pornography or gay literature sorry to, to misquote you tell me you correct uh, me no yeah which which had meant it helped with the brill the ignorance here uh, is that, is that well, something like that yeah no, specifically uh, it's more that well Simon Watney notes uh, in his book uh, policing desire the uh, the government's ban on gay materials coming from the US uh, but what that meant was that in, uh, actual safe sex messages uh, became part of that material ban so uh by default almost yeah it was just part of that sort of that blanket ban yeah and so uh and it's important also to sort of mention there that you know in terms of the safe sex messages they were actually born and came out of the gay community in the u.s so um in san francisco the sisters of perpetual indulgence and also then within new york uh, michael callan and joseph sonoben were both very key in terms of uh yeah, pr- producing safe sex literature, which wasn't actually being disseminated or produced by any kind of na- national health organization. So what you see is a kind of uh, very much a grassroots uh, level of uh, organization here. Um, and yeah, as I sort of point to, actually, you know, that that prohibition of uh, material, you know, we don't necessarily know, but, you know, in terms of actual information coming out into the UK, uh, that may have, you know... Had an effect. Had an effect in terms yeah. of, uh, you know people being infected and so on. So, I mean, there is real political, as I say, political and ideological dimensions to the AIDS epidemic. Um, yeah. 
and and so the, these shows going on, which have gone on in America in the last few couple of few years, and now happening here, perhaps a bit more. Are we sort of not paying catch up, but we're? It's, it's interesting. It's sort of following the same time. I think what's we're yeah, after I, the I, Americans again, as it were. I, yeah, but I think what's interesting, and also perhaps what we try and pinpoint here is living in an age of what we now say austerity. And the sense now that we live in a period of, let's say, survival rather than to use sort of Lauren Berlin's ideas of survival versus flourishing. And I think now we feel this sense of surviving and also in terms of how we see the diminishment of, uh, let's say, big state and um, let's say uh, even like the ability to help us, you know. So there's a kind of further sense of uh, kinship and self-care and other kinds of organizations of yeah, care and, and self-governance in a way. Um, and I think in a, that's why these kind of, um, what's seen these kind of groupings and these kind of uh, quite activist and uh, inspiring, I would say, um, groups become suddenly much more, uh, they, they, they feel like parallels to where we are. I mean, of course, the... Uh, the actual realities are very different, but I think we somehow ident- we can see as, or identify certain feelings of uh, the ways in which those um, healthcare and uh, social well-being and social welfare uh, are, are diminishing spaces. And yeah, I think there's parallels. That's why. So, I think so the to need to extent, adopt some of this kind of activity form. Not, yeah, not necessarily adopt, but I think there's a certain recognition or a paralleling of those because there's a need, maybe. Do you, yeah, I mean, at one point you mentioned that there's actually you you thought some exhibitions might be occurring in museums because they needed to show some political work. Well, I, I well, I don't necessarily that, I, I and say there wasn't any, <laughs> so I, they I, went I, back. I just say like more of a is there an attempt to grasp at some real issues? Uh, I mean, that's maybe a cynical point. No, no, I, I don't think it is at all. But I, what interests me, I was trying to get you as well, which I think you have to a degree. You said what your impetus in writing about this now was obviously because there's lots of shows and they're interesting occurring that's a reason but the other other what really interests me as well is whether or not this is something that people can learn from and use for some specific thing or, or general thing actually now and and maybe there's a kind of growing um maybe it's, it's partly subconscious kind of need to know about because it hasn't happened for a long time but the other thing is also that age hasn't gone away has it i mean we are yeah and i think you know i try and I mean, we. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to other people. Yeah, about I know. This, but I was I mean, pleased uh, too. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not keeping people out uh, about the ways in which maybe. I mean, I think the show certainly of Grand Fury's work had to show it specifically shows that work in a historical frame. Um, but of course, you know how those subjects of, you know, I, I mentioned a sort of the criminalization of HIV and um, the 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 fact that. Uh, you know, U.S. laws and also European laws have kind of, you know, they've come back in a way and they've, uh, they're not, you know, they've, they've not gone away. You know, I say that, you know, cases of saliva, you know, biting and spitting um, and so on uh, in, as a resulted of 12 people being prosecuted or 12 states of prosecuted. Well, in actual fact, you can't pass AIDS by saliva. So you can't pass, yeah, pass HIV via saliva, that's yeah, right. So the prejudices yeah. still exist, is it? Yes, basically. And also in terms of, I mean, there's many, many issues here, um, you know, equally like from sex workers not wanting to get tested because of once you get tested, uh, you know, th- there's a whole series of 
yeah, com- complexities here around that. Um, yeah. There's a legality effect. And- yeah, I mean, I was in Singapore recently and, uh, you know, sex workers there get t- have to get tested every month in order to uh, pass the, you know, to continue having their license. Uh, if, of course, uh, once you, you know, so you have to ad- ad- submit to these kinds of investigatory or kind of yeah, submit to this sort of uh, the laws that the, the country in order to continue your sex work. Um, so maybe the things that people need to protest about now have become slightly subtler or more complicated. Yeah, I, just, I, I, I sort of end that. Uh, Can I just ask, just yeah. to interject, that 940,000 people, that 940,000 yeah. people, like what's the distribution globally? Because it does strike me that well, actually it's ongoing. So it's not like subtle in a way. It's subtle perhaps in the West. Yeah, and I didn't mean so the, de- the deaths are subtle, no. Yeah, I mean, geographically, a, a large portion of those are in Africa, um, but also still in America and Europe. Europe and you know, and a lot of these cases, if you think about how we understand uh, HIV globally, um, as well, some material is not available. So, for instance, the Middle East, you you know, there's no material available that. Um, you mean you mean drugs to take? Do you mean? Uh, no, they just or just oh, just to tell statistics. people what the risk is or no, no statistics. Oh, I see. Of, yeah. uh, Sorry. And so there's certain admissions and gaps in terms of understanding about what the global portrait is, but um, yeah. And also the politics of like mass, you know, pharma, like that's yeah. com- like that's. I mean, that is something that needs to be reckoned with and grappled with. And sorry, you know. Dominic, have a go. I was just going to say that I thought something that um, struck me as interesting in the article is that kind of um, disagreement between Grand Fury and General Idea around yeah. the appropriation of uh, Robert Indiana's. Um, love imagery, so, and that seems to be where one made it, l- created a image that says AIDS, and the other says riot. There's this disparity between works that need to have a sort of ut- utility. Um, so that, you know, Grand Fury has to inform people, has to disseminate information, has to change things for the good, mm. and another kind of work which is still activist to, to a certain extent, or certainly political, but that doesn't seek to change people in the same way mm. and that that's it struck me then that there was all of these other works outside of what you were talking about which you do mention like the reza abdo show the david warnerovich or things that aren't here like ron athey or <coughs> some of the things in jonathan katz's aids our aids america show where um it because they're quite tricky to engage with or at least in the in the context of this article <coughs> because they actually make things harder mm. rather than f- fix things what do, you, what do you think about that in terms of well, yeah, I, I agree with you in the sense that these works, certainly the work of Grand Fury has a utilitarian mm-hmm. drive forward. And in a sense, that was the main thrust of this article in a way to kind of give that the sort of uh, the ways in which to kind of map out the context through which those uh, that material was sort of felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I brought in more the Grand Fury, uh, general idea work, partly because of that, uh, the sort of almost a kind of see how they situated themselves or how that work might be situated in that legacy uh, by, by virtue of the fact that Grand Fury uh, gave a riposte to it. So, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that uh, General Ideas work in a way doesn't fit uh, the same sort of mandate or uh, kind of criteria, but uh, it's certainly interesting in terms of the, inta- inta- the, sort, of loca- the sort of local antagonisms, let's say, mm-hmm. that uh, define that sort of generation of work um, and how... Not not in a sort of critical or judgmental way, but just more about how that portrait or picture builds to an understanding of how uh, antagonisms might be thought about in a more productive way as opposed to just a critical, mm-hmm. separative way or separationist way. I'm really sorry, guys. To be fair to Andrew, yes. can we talk 
and it is a bit quick, and I apologise because we've had a good good conversation about everything. But tell us about the show at seventeen. David Raymond, Conroy Retail Space that you went to. There are connections between that and other things, and probably, the readers, re- listeners will work them out, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, I think there certainly are. Um, I think we can even kind of think about ideas of uh, cultural practice from the AIDS crisis that kind of extend to some of the relationships to institutional critique that are um, happening in his work. But um, for the month of January, so starting New Year's Day to the 31st, uh, David Raymond Conroy um, put 17 Gallery for uh, up for hire. It's a commercial space, by the way. Yes, a commercial gallery space. This is uh, maybe his fourth or fifth show with the gallery, I think. Um, so uh, basically anyone who inquired by call or who found it on one of the websites um, that it was listed on could hire the gallery uh, for their own personal use. It could be private. It could be public. Um, and as long as the their proposed operations were legal, um, the gallery would go ahead with it. Um, so, were they legal? <laughs> as far as I know, um, I'm not certain of everything that happened um, in there, and I think it's it's an interesting um, proposition because what he's kind of doing is basically allowing uh, people to take over the space and see what happens, and nothing could have happened in this space, and that would have informed the reading. Um, but it seemed like a lot of people really just took it as a gallery space. So there was a youth center that took it on for one night. Um, I think there was a BFA or MFA show that happened um, for one night. Um, and and they, it, they would have paid. So there yes, was actually a, yeah. a fee. Wasn't some of the money given to the gallery and some to the artists? So there was a, um, a fee structure put in place where I think any revenue for rentals in excess of the gallery's operating costs went to the artist, um, which I think, you know, this is uh, related to the way that galleries pay artists in a sense. I mean, normally you have a 50-50 split between the artist and the gallery, but then you factor in things like production costs and the way an artist gets paid is it's usually subtract production costs. But this was sort of revealed in in the way he he did the show, and and so people would learn about these things more. There's also a very elegant sign he had in the gallery which said, for the duration of this exhibition, the gallery is available to sublet excellent rates available, didn't he? Yes. Uh, And I think the rates were negotiable, but I found on one site I think it was uh, listed at £400 per day. Um, and I think, I mean, the, the, the gesture of um, renting out the gallery or putting nothing in the gallery is something that artists have been doing for about 50 years. I think Eve Klein is cited as one of the He painted the gallery white, didn't he, completely? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he was really interested in kind of architectures of air, which was something that gets picked up by Michael Asher in the 60s and 70s. Um, and I, th- I think what uh, Conroy was doing was he was making this kind of relation or claiming a kind of relationship to the gig economy and kind of sites of labor in the gallery. Um, so kind of within the press release, he cites like Amazon and Airbnb and these kinds of things. Um, and for me, that was kind of interesting because you sort of think about uh I guess that's kind of what a gallery is doing in a way. They have this kind of roster of artists that they are renting the gallery we, out. You to come and stay with them for a while. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's I mean, it's not quite the same relationship, but um, 
in a way, an artist is always a freelancer. Um, did, did it also imply maybe the, the, precar- the precarious nature of being a gallery in, in London as well for you somewhere? I think you suggested that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've seen um, in certainly in London and New York as well, there have been plenty of galleries that have closed or changed the way they do their operations. Um, so I think... You know, we we think about the commercial and the public sphere as this kind of binary, but of course it's much more nuanced than that. There are different um, sort of levels of each. And um, I was thinking of it, too, in relationship to an exhibition by Renee Green from 1994 uh, in New York at Pat Hearn Gallery, which was um, related to a lot of institutional critique and the way that gallery moved around New York. It was kind of... Um, chasing, like every gallery is, they're kind of chasing a a good space with affordable um, rents. So uh, Renee Green did something very similar where she, in 1994, which is after an art market crash and a stock market crash, put the gallery for hire to kind of consider what the, uh, the social structures that take place in a gallery are, what kind of events would happen there. Um, and I think the I think something else that um, came up for me was the way that in the public sphere, venue hire is a really important uh, revenue source for galleries. For yeah, for a public gallery. yeah, like Camden Art Centre or whoever yeah. would, would rent. You can rent a room and have a party or something at the yeah. right time of day and in the right. Or if you have, you know, a, a lovely garden, that's a great place for uh, a venue. And if you look at Arts Council job listings, there are people being hired specifically to run these kinds of It's happening of more and more with the, as the grants go down. Exactly, yeah. Um, as, a kind of, as, as things kind of shift to a more American model of funding. Um, so that, I, to me, uh, it sort of became interesting to think about the <coughs> protest of the, at the Museum of Design over the summer where there was a defense contractor who had a private event that coincided with uh, an exhibition of kind of agitprop design. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there was the kind of possibility that something um, really wild could have happened at 17, mm-hmm. like maybe there would have been a UKIP rally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then people, people would have to decide whether they would allow it or not. I mean, just, maybe things were proposed that they didn't allow. Yeah. I'd, it would be nice to see more documentation in a way, which presumably wasn't in the show, of, of what exactly was considered and rejected. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that kind of points to the way that there is always this kind of smoke-filled room in which things are happening and decisions are being made. That's kind of the nature of the But making world. public that information wasn't part of the premise? No. Interesting. What do you think it added to the discourse? Uh, I mean, I was... A bit skeptical of it going in. I, I mean, I think there's a way where he's really, in kind of previous work, he's really p- coming out of this conceptual legacy that I'm inclined to entertain. And he's engaged with kind of like, what is the role of the artist? Where do we put the artist? And I think ac- for me, kind of in writing it, it was actually helpful to kind of think through like, well, what uh, what is the kind of status of the gallery right now? Um, and And also to compare it to... Uh, Maria Eichhorn's recent show at mm. Chisholm Hale, where I think this was kind of where she closed the gallery for the duration of the exhibition to kind of think about labor. Um, this was kind of a, a more fun possibility. <laughs> That's great. Listen, we, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I'd like to thank the guests Chris McCormack, Andrew Hibbard, 
Dominic Johnson and Isabel Harbison for coming on the show and for you for listening. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Art Monthly at www.artmonthly.co.uk and we'd love it if you did. You can get print or digital subscriptions. Goodbye, listeners. Thanks again, everyone. Thank, Thank you very much. Bye-bye.